Church, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This is the greatest miracle recorded in the entire book of Jonah. This is the greatest revival in the sense of evangelism in the history of the world. An entire Gentile culture, a pagan city. And it is estimated, by the way, that this population of the city of Nineveh was probably around 600,000 people. So we're not talking about a small village. We're talking about a city of considerable size. The songwriter said, The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. We have an easier time seeing how God can condemn wicked sinners to hell than seeing how he can forgive them and let them into heaven. The truth is, we are all sinners and worthy of the punishment of God. We might not be as bad as Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden or the Assyrians in Jonah's day, but we all fall short of the glory of God. Today on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve continues the series on the book of Jonah. We'll understand better why Jonah ran away from the will of God when we hear just how bad the Assyrians of Nineveh were. The question we need to ask ourselves is not, how could God love the Assyrians? But how can God love a sinner like me? Here's Pastor Steve. So not only does the Old Testament present Jonah as a real and historical figure, but but it's beyond that. Jesus himself made it very clear that he regarded Jonah as a real person. And he regarded his book as accurate history. He even used the accounts of the fish swallowing Jonah to point to his own miraculous resurrection. In Matthew chapter 12, we read this. Remember the the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked for a sign. They were always looking for signs. They wanted something stupendous, some supernatural sign that Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus said, an evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And now listen to what Jesus said. It was history to him. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus verified that Jonah was historical. And following this statement, Jesus tied the preaching of Jonah with the coming judgment that the Pharisees and that generation would face. He said, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Folks, it seems rather clear from Scripture, especially based on what Jesus said, that we are supposed to accept Jonah as a very real and factual Jewish prophet, just like any other real and factual Jewish Old Testament prophet. But Jonah was unlike other prophets in the sense that he was commissioned by God, as we said, to leave Israel, go to a foreign country, and preach against it. There were other Jewish prophets who did preach against foreign nations, but Jonah is the only one, as we said, who was told to specifically leave Israel, go to a foreign country, cry against it. And Jonah was the only prophet commissioned to speak messages to Gentiles who disobeyed God. He absolutely said no. He rebelled against God. Notice verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa found the ship which was going to Tarshish, 
paid the fare, went down into it with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Amazing. Amazing. This was a prophet. This was a true believer. Jonah was told by God to go to the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was about 600 miles east of Israel. He's told to preach there because of their great wickedness. And their wickedness was incredibly great. The Assyrians were a horrible people. They were a horrible people, and Nineveh was their capital city. At that time, Assyria, not to be confused with the modern-day Syria, this is Assyria, was a world empire on the rise. They were not the dominating world empire yet. They would eventually be, but they were a force to be reckoned with. Assyria was noted for its unparalleled cruelty in conquering other nations. They were the terrorists of the ancient world. They were the Al-Qaeda of their times, and everyone knew it. Let me just explain a little bit about it. Most other ancient world empires conquered to expand their territory. That was not the case of Assyria. They conquered to torment other nations. They delighted in torturing people, in, in destroying cities and inflicting pain upon others. Bible teacher Graham Scroggy explained their terrorist military tactics. He said the Assyrian kings literally tormented the world. They flung away the bodies of soldiers like so much clay. They made pyramids of human heads. They sacrificed holocausts of the sons and daughters of their enemies. They burned cities. They, they filled populous lands with death and devastation. They reddened broad uh, deserts with carnage of warriors. They scattered whole countries with the corpses of their defenders as with chaff. They, they impaled heaps of men on stakes and strewed the mountains and choked the rivers with dead bones. They cut off the hands of kings and nailed them on the walls and they left their bodies to rot with bears and dogs on the entrance gates of the cities. They cut down warriors like weeds and smote them like wild beasts in the forest and covered pillars with the flayed skins of rival monarchs. And these things they did without sentiment or compunction. These people were cold hearted. These people were brutal. These people were cruel. They, they absolutely delighted in torturing people. Sometimes they inserted their hands into the mouths of their victims and ripped out their tongues. At other times, they caused agony by driving a sharp and long pole into a man's chest and raising it in the air while the, the victim was wreathing in pain, and then they would just leave him there to die. Boys and girls were often burned alive. Others were blinded, and they had their their hands, their feet, their ears cut off, not when they were dead, but when they were, they were alive. And when we talked about how they would flay the skins off of people, that's not when they're dead either. It's when they were alive. These people delighted in it. These were, these were, these were horribly brutal and godless, and, and that's the people God told Jonah to go to and preach to them. But Jonah didn't go. Instead, we're told in verse 3 that he went down to Joppa. Joppa is, is the modern-day city now of, of Jaffa, which is right next to Tel Aviv, just so you kind of have that in your mind. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship there that was going to Tarshish. In other words, Jonah, he's heading in the opposite direction. God told him to go east. He's heading west. Tarshish was a city on the coast of, of Spain, which was and still is to the west of Israel. Now, why did Jonah do this? Why did he go? There are some who would tell us, well, Jonah was afraid of the Assyrians. They're so wicked that they might kill him. And we could understand that if that were the case, but that's not the case. There's no indication in the book of Jonah that fear entered Jonah's mind. No, that's something far beyond that. 
In fact, we don't even have to guess at it. Jonah himself tells us, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is after the Ninevites have repented. This is after there's a converted generation of Assyrian Ninevites. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, please, Lord. Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. You know what Jonah's doing? He's giving God an I told you speech. He said, God, I told you. I told you this would happen. The reason I fled to Tarshish when you first told me to go to Nineveh is because I know that you're gracious. I know that you're compassionate and that you would be merciful to these people if they repented of my preaching. I told you this would happen and I'm angry. I knew it would happen. I didn't want to go. And yes, it happened. Folks, Jonah didn't want this to happen. He believed that God's mercy was reserved only for Jewish people, the covenant people, and not his Gentile enemies. See, instead of loving these folks, the people of Nineveh, Jonah actually despised them. He had no heart for them. He didn't care about them. As far as he's concerned, they could all die and go to hell and he'd be fine. That was Jonah's heart. He despised them. He wanted God to judge them rather than extend his amazing mercy to them. See, Jonah just wants them to get what what they deserve. God's fury, not his compassion. Now, in case you're sitting here thinking, well, I'm sure glad that's not me. Because I don't see myself here. Oh, think again. There are plenty of Christians today who are so focused on God's justice and punishment that they really don't want him to be merciful to anybody else. Unless you think, well, that's not me. That is you. That is me. If you think that it couldn't possibly be true of you, then consider this. Have you ever once prayed for the salvation of Osama bin Laden? You want him to get justice. And justice he should get. But I hope before he gets justice, he comes to faith in Christ. That ought to be our heart cry for this man. God wants us to pray for that man's salvation and others too. Have you ever thought about how you would respond if the Lord called you to go to an Islamic country to be a missionary, to proclaim salvation in Christ to terrorists and militants who despise you and would torture and kill you and your family and right in front of your eyes if they had the opportunity, perhaps a little bit closer to home as someone ever hurt you and hurt you deeply and you long for God to just get them just get them give them what they deserve they hurt me and I hope you hurt them or how about this is there anyone that you haven't forgiven in your heart you see if you won't extend the mercy of personal forgiveness to them then you're not interested in God extending his mercy of forgiveness to them either and don't deceive yourself don't deceive yourself sin is so is so deceptive Yes, I want them to have God's forgiveness. Not if you don't forgive them, you don't. So this this hits home. See, the human heart always prefers judgment to grace. But God's heart always prefers grace to judgment. And that's what the Bible teaches, not just in the book of Jonah, but throughout Scripture. Let me, let me read this to you. I would encourage you to write this down. Ezekiel. God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel and, and reveals, exposes his heart of compassion to us. This may surprise you what what God is really like. Ezekiel 18.23 says, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Now let's stop there. Wouldn't it be true to say that many of us think that God does have delight, does take delight in the death of the wicked, that he's just he's just gloating over the people in hell? 
thinking they're getting just what they deserve, and I'm glad. God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather that he should turn from his ways and live. God says, I take no delight in their death. Ezekiel 18.32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Ezekiel 33.11, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God does not take delight or pleasure in the death of the unsaved. God does not enjoy people burning in hell. God says, I, I want you to turn. I want you to turn. See, folks, unlike so many of us, God's heart longs for the salvation of the wicked. And one of the great mysteries of the nature and character of God is this. Although the unsaved despise him and, and hate him and rebel against him and spit upon him and blaspheme him and mock him and absolutely disregard him at times. And if given the opportunity would murder him again, just like they did Jesus Christ. In spite of that, God longs to demonstrate his compassion upon people like this. And more than longing to display his compassion upon them, watch this. God actually rejoices over sinners who repents. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Now, I read earlier the two parables of Luke 15 in the first 10 verses, but there are actually three parables in Luke 15. And those of us who had the privilege to sit under John MacArthur's ministry at the Shepherds Conference heard an incredible exposition, like I've never heard before, of the parable of the prodigal son, which, as we learned, should really be called the, the parable of the searching seeking, loving father. Now, I'm not going to go through all of it. I'm going to read it and comment on it, but I would encourage you to get MacArthur's message on this. This was incredible. But understand that the point of all this, that the, the chapter starts out in verses 1 and 2, saying this, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. That is, Christ was, was being with tax collectors and sinners. By sinners, it means immoral people. We'll, we'll learn this specifically later because the older brother in the parable speaks about the prostitutes that his younger brother was with. So meaning that the sinners here were immoral people, people who weren't allowed into the temple, people who were banished from fellowship in Israel, and certainly tax collectors were. And verse 2 says, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. These self-righteous men thought they were above the tax collectors and the immoral people. And they said, how could Jesus, if he's a holy man, be with people like this? How could he lower himself to be with such trash? And so Jesus told them a parable. And the point of the parable is to say that God the Father rejoices when a lost sinner repents. That it's just people like this that Jesus came to seek and to save. He had said in another passage, those who are sick need a physician. These are the people who need this, the, the physician of their souls. And so he went on to speak about a lost sheep and how a shepherd, if he loses one precious sheep, will leave the others. Obviously, it means he'll leave them in the care of someone else. He doesn't abandon them. And he'll go and, and seek until he finds that sheep. And he'll take that, that sheep and put it on his shoulders. So he loves that sheep and he cares for the welfare of the sheep. And he'll bring it home and, and there'll be a party and they'll rejoice. 
And the lost coin, this, this coin was very valuable to this woman. It may have been connected with, um, with some type of clothing that she had that maybe was given to her by a family relative and there were some coins in it and to lose it would be like losing a treasure. It may be that she just didn't have a whole lot of money and you lose one coin, you've lost much of your, your income. For whatever reason, it was valuable to her and, and she's upset and she's searching and sweeping the house and can't find it, but then she finds it and she's thrilled. And Jesus said, I tell you, there's joy in heaven like this, only more so when one sinner repents. And then he gives this story. Verse 11, he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now understand this. Normally, you didn't get an inheritance until your father died. You know what this son is saying? He's saying, I wish you were dead, frankly, but I can't wait for you to die. So give me the inheritance now. I really don't care about you. I'm taking it. I want my money and I'll never see you again. If you die without me, fine. At least I have my money. This is a very callous, sin-hardened son. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went out on a journey into a distant country. So he just left home. He didn't want to be under his father's authority. He wanted to see the world. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And we learn later, much of that was on prostitutes. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, this may not grip you a whole lot. Oh, he worked with pigs. This is a Jewish boy working with pigs. To the Jewish people of that day, a swine was the lowest of the animals. It was a filthy animal. It was an unkosher animal. In fact, Orthodox Jews today would, would not have ham. This, this is the height of degradation. Verse 16, he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. So he's starving. He's working with pigs. He spent all his money on loose living, and he's starving. But when he came to his senses, folks, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Folks, this is true repentance. He recognizes how wicked he is. And he's turning from that wickedness and he's humbling himself as a bankrupt sinner before his father. So that's what he's planning to do. So verse 20 says, so he got up, came to his father, but notice this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Let's stop there. Why did his father see him when he was a long way off? Because he was looking for him. Ever since the day he left, his father is looking for him. Folks, the, the son is a picture of us repenting and coming to God the Father. The Father is a picture of God the Father. This is his heart, looking, looking in the distance for his son to return. So we read, he got up, came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And note this, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Do you understand what's taking place here? It was not the most dignified thing for an old Jewish man to start running long flowing robes that 
for modesty's sake, covered his legs. They're not covering his legs anymore. He's running to his son. Now, people today think nothing of this. We who jog and run have shorts on and and we don't care about that. But in that culture, for a man to start running with these long clothes on, his legs showing, that's not a very dignified picture. But it is exactly the picture that Jesus wants us to have of God the Father. This is the heart and compassion of God. Look at this. God the Father is pictured here as running to the sinner, embracing him and kissing him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, I mean, just interrupts him quickly, bring out the best robe, put it on and put a, a, a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. God says, let's have a party. He runs to his son. He kisses him. He embraces him. He says, enough. I've heard enough. Let's celebrate. There is joy in, in heaven when one sinner repents. Folks, this is the heart of God. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. So the son, the younger son represents us. We who've repented. We have come to a point where God shows us our wicked hearts and we repent and come to faith in Christ. And the father runs to us, kisses us. If you've ever thought that God is just too busy running the world, that yes, you were saved and that's fine and wonderful for you. you. You've missed it. You've missed the point. It's wonderful for God. God delights in evangelism. And as John MacArthur pointed out to all of our pastors there, we ought to evangelize for the joy of God the Father. But there's still another person in the story representing someone else. And that, remember, they're, they're the Pharisees who grumbled. And this story is being told to the Pharisees to drive home a point. Well, we read in verse 25, someone representing them in the story, the older son. Remember, there were two sons. Now, the older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. He said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. Now, you think he'd be thrilled, but like the Pharisees, they were not thrilled. You think the Pharisees would have been thrilled. Here's Jesus reaching out to sinners who need salvation, but they're too self-righteous to see that. They look down upon these people just as this, this older brother now is going to respond in anger. But he became angry and, would, and would, was not willing to go in. And his father came out to him and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, look. For so many years I've been serving you and I've never neglected a command of yours. Now let's stop there. That is a lie. That is a lie. If this son represents the Pharisees and he he does, does that mean that the Pharisees had never broken any of the commandments? That's what they thought. That's why they're self-righteous fools. That's why they were still lost in their sins. That's like the Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. It's like the rich young ruler said, I've kept all of your commands from my youth upwards. It's a lie. Wow. Did you ever think about God running toward you, the sinner, because he loves you so much? What an amazing picture of our compassionate God. Oh, how he loves you and me. Thanks, Pastor Steve, for helping us see God's love in a new way today. Don't forget, you can order the messages in this series, or you can download them at our website, versebyverseradio.org. 
Or you can call us at 727-239-0306 to order many of our valuable resources. We believe God's Word can make a difference in your life. Why not share this ministry with a friend? Thanks for joining us for Verse by Verse today. We're very grateful to each of you who give to support this ministry. If you would like to partner with us through prayer or a financial gift, please give us a call at 727-239-0306. On our next broadcast, we're going to see how foolish it is to fight against God. He might not send us a big fish, but he has ways of letting us know that he is always in charge. For Pastor Steve and the rest of the staff, I'm Jerry Pruden, inviting you to join us next time here on Verse by Verse. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre-recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's Verse by We're here to give you strength between